Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 95. This week, we talk with Mads Torgerson about the C-sharp language and what the future holds. Visual Studio Code for Go. And when will Mads give us emoji? This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. Mads Torgerson is a program manager for the C-Sharp programming language. He runs the C-Sharp language design process and maintains the language specification. Welcome, Mads. Uh, thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, we're super. We've been excited about this episode. We'll just we'll keep it at that. Uh, Carl, how, how are things going on your side? Things are going good and things are going to be going really good for Marcus Stenkvist. Um, mm-hmm. He sent us an email saying that he listened to the episode about working from home. And mm-hmm. like Jason, he likes the smell of coffee, but is not a coffee drinker. But he's going to try yeah. an AeroPress coffee maker since it. Uh, he's trying to cut back from his Red Bull. Okay. Um, he he says it's kind of boggles uh, his mind when we use all of our American systems of ounces, et cetera. And he would be uh, <laughs> appreciated if we could translate into the metric system. Um, you know, that's kind of hard to flip that switch in my head. So I'm not going to make any guarantees, but Jason could try yeah. if he wants to. Tell me about it. I've, I've been in the United States for 10 years now, and it still uh, boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> what 10 years? What is that in, in Imperial? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's something something with 12 or I don't know. <laughs> you, <laughs> Certainly not going to be yeah. decimal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 12 American years. <laughs> and he says that he can't give us a five-star iTunes review because he doesn't have iTunes. But if we get to Sweden, where he is from, or any other Scandinavian country, he will point out interesting th- things for us to do. So uh, okay. thanks for that, and uh, thanks for all of your comments, Marcus. And uh, if you want to uh, be entered in a chance to get the Infragistics Ultimate License like Marcus had, just send us uh, an email at feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, iTunes, or Stitcher. We like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah, that and- was really great. We actually, we've been getting just tons and tons and tons of feedback, and we love it. We read it all. Unfortunately, we can't read all of it on here, but we definitely, and we reply, anything we can reply to, like questions, we generally answer, that type of thing. And I don't have any plans to visit Sweden, although that would be pretty awesome. I was, two weeks ago, I was in Australia, and then uh, I was in Cleveland last week. So I think I, I've literally been like more than, you know, on opposite ends of the earth. <laughs> and uh, I've already gotten a request to go back to Australia, and I had somebody request to, for me to go to uh, to Prague. Uh, but man, that stuff kills you. I I, um, now I have uh, strep throat and I'm finally on antibiotics. So I'm starting to recover from that, <laughs> but that, that travel is, is tough. So I don't know when I'm going to make it to Sweden. You should though. It's awesome. Uh, it, as, oh, yeah? a, as a fellow Scandinavian. Yeah. I definitely recommend yeah. Sweden. Awesome. Go awesome. for the, go Sometime. for the waffles. <laughs> go for the waffles. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love waffles. Okay, Carl, should we get to the news? Absolutely. Okay. What do we got here? Uh, Linux creator Linus Torvalds doesn't really care about open source. Yeah, you know, a lot of times we talk about open source and like all the great benefits that come of it, um, Mm -hmm. how Microsoft's been open sourcing a lot of things and how that's great. And you just assume that, you know, Linus Torvald is a creator of Linux, would care about open source. But apparently he only chose it 
because he wanted people to comment on his code so he could make sure that his code wasn't crap. I was going to say, I, I think he's gotten some advantages uh, from allowing people to contribute to the code base because uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of code in there. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that he hasn't benefited from it, but he, you know, he says his words and he's a very opinionated guy that uh, he yeah. doesn't care about open source in that way. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about him. I mean, he, he definitely uh, will share his opinion, good or bad. So, uh, yeah, that, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, let's see here. How to use Chrome extensions to bypass paywalls. So we should probably first define paywall. So it's this annoying thing that happens if you go to like, I don't know who's, who's really guilty of this. New York um, times is good. I was going to say is, is New York Wall street times, journal. Yeah. Yeah. So you, sometimes when you go there, you get right in, you get to see the story and other times it pops up and I don't even know what they're saying. I don't know if they're asking you to pay them or click on an ad. I don't even care. I just leave immediately. So they, they just they just don't get my readership whenever that gets popped up. So what what is this? Well, this shows it, – it's not just an extension, but it shows you how to make an extension to bypass these paywalls. And one of the things that they noticed is like if you go to Google or Bing, you know they'll have these articles in their search results, which means that obviously the robots and crawlers, they can get in and see the content. So mm -hmm. what this does is for these sites only – It'll give the headers to make it look like it's the Google, you know, robot crawler, web crawler. Yeah. And that way you can go in and be like, oh, you're Google. Obviously, we want you to check out our stuff. And then you can go in and check out their website. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is there is there like anything like unethical about this? I mean, well, probably. it's funny because you're, you're like you're like doing like the simplest of lies. And then they're ha happily saying like, oh, well, here you go. Um I can't quite figure out if there's if there's going to be like somebody listening to this that's going to be like, oh, you guys are stealing content if you're doing this. I don't I don't know if there's a problem with this or not because it's like it is sort of a hack, but it's like the simplest hack. And and the funny thing is, I think if you if you click on the right thing, like through, um, I think it's if you go through like Google News or something, uh, you'll actually get the full article. So there's already hacks that you know you don't have to be a hacker to to actually implement. But uh, it's kind of cool though, because I, I know that Google for a while they were they were super against this this whole idea of giving different content to their spiders that that um, are their crawlers that um, than what users would see. Um, but I guess you in the comments somebody pointed that out right away and they said, oh, you can put it in the site map that says, hey, this is going to be different. Um, so kind of kind of interesting that they allow it because I know they didn't like it at one point. But there's a workaround. We'll call it a we'll call it a workaround, not a hack. <laughs> how to safely store passwords in 2016. I was going to ask you about this, Carl, because they have all the, I think it's guidance for how you actually store passwords and, and, you know, not, not actually looking at this and, and having me judge the technical merits. Like, is there who the, do you know who wrote this? And if they have any, if the, is there any reason why we should necessarily know that like, this is the way to do it? Cause I always worry about looking at a source that is sort of non-authoritative. Well, I don't really know much. So this is from paragonie.com, and I yeah. don't know much about them. But what, but yeah. what the content of the article is really easy to follow. And basically what it says is when it comes to encryption, don't ever roll it yourself. And right, kinda, which we know. And, and use what's best for the time. But the problem is, is you know, uh, the product that we wrote uh, like five years ago, um, that included encryption. And that encryption nowadays is outdated. So knowing what to update it to in 2016, I think, is the important thing. And what was cool about this one is if you're doing .NET or Java or PHP or JavaScript, it shows you what kind of 
is the best of breed for each individual one, along with the code snippets for it. Okay. So probably just a good reference. I'd probably still do your research and, and look around uh, just to make sure you're following the right security guidance. I wouldn't trust any one site, but this looks like it's a pretty pragmatic way of uh, of handling this. Yeah. And, and and for the .NET version, it says, hey, here's two NuGet packages. This one's best. Mm-hmm. This one's next best. Okay. So. Very cool. And I'm guessing whoever made those NuGet packages, you could probably look them up and make sure that they, they know what they're talking about as well. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, this next one was really, uh, we're just going to cover real quick. So the HoloLens, uh, it is uh, open for pre-order and the shipping starts on March 30th. So b- coincidentally, it's right at the build time frame, which is, which is pretty exciting. So there's probably a lot of people out there that uh, have gotten, I guess, noticed that they they are going to get the first wave of this. I, d- I don't know what you can say about this, Carl. Yeah. So um so they announced who, you know, they, they had a thing out saying like, hey, if you want to uh, get entered in, um, you can give us your information. And it was a pretty detailed form. Like, what are you going to de- use this to develop with? Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of cherry picked. They were very clear, like, we will pick you. You're not just going into some drawing or anything. And uh, I got uh, selected to be in the first wave. So um, as soon as um, I get my boss's credit card, and the <laughs> the email to the store, then I will be ordering it. But it, you know, I'm excited. Um, yeah, this is a really cool piece of tech that I've had a chance to try on. I know you have too, Jason. Have you tried it, Mads? Uh, the Hololens only, only in a very preliminary form. Before you, he's got like, it. I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, V two, you can't actually see <laughs> Skype. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just embedded in your head, and he's uh, he's using Skype on it right now. <laughs> Yeah, very cool. Uh, you know, and I've heard I've heard some people. I you know I probably shouldn't get into like a price discussion, but it's kind of funny because the now we know the pricing for like Oculus Rift, which I think is what's was it six hundred bucks. Um, but the the real the real challenge with like the Rift was that you need basically like a three thousand dollar computer. Well, and I have I, seen some. Go ahead, Carl. I I think the best c- comparison is is the dev kit for the PS4. When that mm-hmm. came out originally, it was about three thousand dollars. Okay, and look at the PS price of a PS4 now. I mean, well, so, yeah, ex- exactly. So, exactly. I mean, these things obviously aren't priced for average people or what it's even going to be. Oh, absolutely. But it's funny because, you know, I, I, I saw a couple articles. They're just like, oh, Microsoft's pricing themselves out of the market. They said they were comparing the $3,000 price point to eight or to the $600 price point. Well, of course, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is the whole, this is everything you need versus uh, just one one piece that you need. And like I said, you need like a $3,000 computer for the other one. Um, so that was just one thing that I, I wanted to make sure um, that everybody understood that was listening to this show. Although our listeners are smart enough to, to know what you actually need. Uh, okay, uh, two more things here. One is Visual Studio Code uh, for Go, which I is almost sounds backwards, uh, but... There's basically an extension for Visual Studio Code, which we love, uh, which has support for Go. So anybody that's doing Go development that has been waiting for that, um, I've heard this thing is pretty good. I haven't, I haven't done anything with Go yet, uh, but this looks pretty darn interesting. So I wanted to make sure people are aware of that. Uh, and actually, one of, the, uh, one of the comments I wanted to point out that was on, out on Hacker News, uh, one of the guys said, my team writes in a language created by Google and an editor created by Microsoft on system on a System76 laptop running Ubuntu. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty cool, and that really shows like Microsoft's place in the uh, in the in the new world order, where you know 
we build all the different pieces, but you can mix and match and, and there's probably still a place for, um, you know, whatever, wherever you want Microsoft to be part of that stack. Uh, we have something there and we like to work with everything else. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and the last one here, uh, so Mads, we definitely need you to comment on this cause it was, the title is, uh, yeah, the internet demands a pile of poo from Mads Torgerson. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a link to a, a tweet. Uh, from Joe Duffy, please join me in petitioning Mads Torgerson to permit emoji characters and C-sharp identifiers. The world needs poo emoji exception. <laughs> yeah. Any comment on that? Well, I don't know if <laughs> the world needs that the most, but I can certainly, I mean, it would be kind of fun if you could put emojis in your code, right? Um, yeah. Because Swift supports that. Yeah. I'm just saying. If it rises to that level of usability or usefulness, I don't know, but hey. Um, <laughs> Especially big I, enterprises, they really demand emoji in their code. They must, yeah. <laughs> I, so, so let me just give a real weasel answer here and say I'm not yeah. opposed to it, so it's more like a prioritization issue here. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> but I, I'm, we, we were not being serious at all. That's a great serious answer, though. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Joe was clearly looking for some publicity on this one because he could have just walked over to my office and asked. But it, oh, that's funny. Instead, he instead he chose to go on Twitter with it. So uh. <laughs> he's trying. Well, he's trying to gather user evidence. You know that that this is needed. So yeah, that must be uh, it. And actually, now that I look at it, it was ninety three retweets. So I mean, there's all the evidence you need right there. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's a uh, the new world. You I, <laughs> honestly, why do you need letters? Come right down to it. <laughs> Well, I have seen I've seen that because because Swift supports emoji, so I've seen I've seen some crazy examples of that where they just like redefine all these things in emoji, and then they start writing like emoji only code. Right. Uh, it's just you know pure insanity. You know, maybe that exception wasn't the best thing, but I think it would be really useful for uh, variable names. There's a lot of times where I just use like random letters, thinking I'm going to clean them up later. Where you know a nice <laughs> emoji would actually fit what I'm trying to do. Well, yeah. then what, what are you going to have, like, a toolbar in the editor with, like, emoji or something? Something like you know, that. Because you, you need a way to, like, get them in there, right? You know, you can either go copy and paste. To, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be a time saver. That's probably not the right spin. Well, I'm not this. looking to save time. I'm looking to <laughs> just have better documented code. Oh, I got you. I got you. Always looking to be more efficient. Huh? Okay. So let's get to uh, – let's talk more about C Sharp here, and let's get talking to Mads here. So I guess we should first start, you know, for people who don't know you – uh, why don't we start with what What do you do at Microsoft? Well, I am the C-sharp language PM, a mm -hmm. program manager for the C-sharp language, if you want to be formal about it. So what that means is my day job is to make sure that C-sharp evolves in the right way as a language. So I have, mm -hmm. a, I have a team of language designers that I meet with often, and I kind of make sure that we, or try to make sure that we uh, select the right features and the right focus areas for the language uh, to grow in. Um, okay. That's my day job. Then, you know, I get involved in other stuff. I've been involved in the Roslyn project and in TypeScript. I'm certainly involved with VB uh, since our fates uh, have been kind of linked. Um, and, um, you know, uh, F sharp as well. Uh, so I, I'm kind of, I kind of dabble in various places, but that makes sense. my core thing really is uh, the C sharp uh, language design, if you will. Okay. So I was just kind of like wondering, looking at C-sharp, I was looking at a history of what got added to C-sharp and when. So, you know, how is C-sharp versioned and kind of who makes that decision or who kind of set that up? Well, traditionally, uh, it was sort of 
the idea was that uh, Visual Studio would ship rarely enough that we would just have a new version of C Sharp whenever <laughs> Visual Studio shipped. <laughs> um, it's always so uh, from the from the outset, uh, you know, it was Anders Heilsberg at the end of the table, essentially, you know, um, making the strategic call saying we should focus on this and, you know, let's get together the the right feature set for, you know, that was generics and then it was uh, Link uh, when I come when I came in. Um, Let's just get the right feature set together and and ship it when that's ready. But let's try to get it ready for the next version of Visual Studio. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's various levels of decisions, I guess. There's uh, language designers, though we try to be responsible. You know, we we might want things that are too hard to get, that would be too expensive to build, or um, you know, have various other things going against them. So obviously, there's also a whole production machinery that you know, of people who say, well, you got to choose, you can't do all of these. And so that's obviously resource pressure. Um, yeah. As well as, so, but, so resource pressure is one thing, but I think that we are, we, when you think about how you look at that list of how C Sharp has evolved, uh, we are now shipping version six and are working on version seven. That's a, an awful lot of stuff that we added over the years. And, but that's actually us showing restraint. Um <laughs> We do have sort of a, I don't think we've always articulated it that way, but we do have a strategy of pretty aggressive language evolution. We definitely want to make sure that C-sharp stays a modern language for whichever day and age, right? So we want to keep up with the times as best we can. And at, But at the same time, we're aware that we can't really take things out. We, we've been committed to full backwards compatibility so far. And so whenever we put something in, it's there to stay. And so we really have another kind of budget, which is, how big should the language be? And this this kind of pressure forces us to A, pick only features that we think really have legs. Either they're very small or they are very valuable, um, preferably both. Um, and also go out of our way to try to design them so that they, they fit into C Sharp as nicely as possible to the existing C Sharp and with the existing features, right? So, we'll, mm -hmm. so we will take something like, look at something like dynamic or async. Right. Those are huge features. If you th if you think about what they do under the hood and all all the machinery that goes into them, it's it's enormous. Like they're release carrying features in all their enormity. But at the same time, if you look at what impact they actually have on the language surface area, it's incredibly small. Right? Dynamic, that's just an, a keyword for a type, and everything else flows from that. Um, there's no other syntactic impact on the language. And the same with async. You you put async on a method. You put a weight inside of your method, and that's all. So we really sort of we try to keep the language clean and simple, even as we do these big things sometimes. And that's all because we know that we we will run out of budget at some point, or that where the language will get too big and it it won't be feasible to like keep it all in your head or um, juggle it all at the same time. And we want to, as much as we want to evolve aggressively, we also want to stay a viable language for as long as possible a manage manageable size language yeah i mean every feature that you add i mean it's like it's like getting a pet i mean you just you're gonna have to live with it for a long 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 time so yeah you know you, you definitely want to take your time and not just you know throw every every random thing in there i guess one of the questions i had around the the versioning was you know there's there's the concept of of the version of c sharp you mentioned you know six version six being released but then there's also the net framework version and what is the relationship there? Does one do they is there one that requires a version bump of the other? 
mostly not. And this is part of why we have kept the numbers separate. Um, yeah. We we did take a strong dependency on .NET 2.0, and particularly on the generics being implemented in the runtime uh, when we did C Sharp 2.0. Uh, so they happen to have the same version number and to be very strongly tied to each other. You can't do, you can't down target uh, C sharp two to uh, .NET one. That just doesn't work because of deeply ingrained features. But actually, yeah. actually, since then we have been, uh, I want to say mostly, almost entirely, um, free of that kind of coupling. The only kind of dependencies that the language have on the framework is that we expect certain types to be available when we compile. So. Um, there are, there are types here and there uh, that the, the compiler will look for, but we don't necessarily, uh, we don't need to take those types from the framework. You can supply your own versions of them, if you will. And in that sense, we are sort of decoupled, even though there are types that we expect to find, we're decoupled from the actual version of the framework, if you will. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm remembering that now. I want to say it was it was around like the .NET 3.5 days, and I don't remember what the features were, but I remember there was... I could use like a newer version of Visual Studio and I could actually target an older version of the .NET framework. And I actually had some of the new features and people are like, well, that's going to require the new .NET framework. I'm like, no, 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 totally. It doesn't. It doesn't. It was, which was pretty cool. So that it's neat seeing that, that decoupling that some of those features are just, um, uh, I don't, would you call them syntactic, syntactic sugar at that point? You know, the fact that they can still use an older version of the .NET framework. Yeah, I guess you could be, you could call them syntactic sugar, right? I tend to yeah. sometimes... I don't mean it as a negative. <laughs> right. Syntactic sugar kind of implies that they are very superficial. I sometimes yeah. I sometimes call them semantic sugar <laughs> in that they... <laughs> maybe maybe it's like an entire, like, you know, like 10 pounds of sugar. <laughs> yeah. They, they go a lot deeper. Uh, this is like Costco sugar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just go at one of those bags with a spoon. It's like a pallet. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we established so the latest release version is six. Uh, so when did that ship? That ship last summer. Uh, that was last summer. Northern okay. Northern Hemisphere time. I, I was in Australia recently as well, so I have to get. Oh, okay. I have to learn to be careful not to say summer. They shipped last July. Okay, and it's tomorrow there, which is makes it confusing as well. Yeah. Now imagine planning an event. I kept saying, "Oh, I'm you know, let's talk about this tomorrow." I'm like, "Wait, that's my yesterday." You know, uh, anyway. <laughs> but last, I totally understand the confusion. But last July anyway. So there's a pretty recent yeah. version of C sharp. Uh, mm -hmm. That hasn't even okay, been out cool. for a year. Yeah, and I know we've talked about it a couple times on the on the show some of the some of the new features. Uh -huh. But I I did want to talk about like some of the more uh, well received edition uh, or the the the, the features that I, I think have been most publicized. So I'd like to walk through some of those, mm -hmm. and I'd like to get your feedback on that. So I have I have some listed. Yeah. But um, I'd like to hear what you think has has had some of the the biggest impact. Uh, well, there actually quite a so. C Sharp 6 is a little different from previous releases in that most of the features are smaller, but then they're more numerous, right? So they're kind of, uh, so there's a lot of I think I think of some of them are huge. I, I think even though some of them are small features, so I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, the name of expression, right? Right. So you can say name of, and then it will essentially pass a string, uh, which is, it, it's like a, it's like a life changing <laughs> feature for a developer, even though you might, you might think it's simple. I think it's, I think it's like life changing. Well, it is, it's one of those that uh, it's sort of the cat flap thing, right? Where it's obvious once you get it. I, yeah. And I think um, I, those are features like name of, I'm, I'm sort of the most proud of because they're really, really simple, but they have they have made a lot of impact in people's lives. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, name of what is it really? It's a longer string literal, 
that is that give is more likely to give you an error. Now, how can that be good? <laughs> <laughs> but it is precisely because you're ensuring that you're always getting the name of something that is in your program and you're enabling the tool to rename it along with the other references of that identifier and so on. So, mm-hmm. so I really like that because it's so darn simple. And, yeah. and some of the others have a similar flavor. You look at um, string interpolation, for instance. Again, it's really just a shorter way of calling string.format. But it makes such a difference, such a difference yeah. in your source code. And people are like, oh, you should never use strings. You should always, for localization, you should always have your strings and resources, whatever. But look at source code. There's strings everywhere. I mean, you know, most people's code. And and string.format is really great. It can do all kinds of things for you. But you just quickly end up messing it up because you have these placeholders inside of your format string. And then you have arguments. And there's no compiler checking that the arguments and the and the um, placeholders stay in sync in any way and you, mm-hmm. so you can easily mess things up and you look at it and it's not obvious what it prints out right you kind of have to do the insertion in your head and so just adding a syntax for that is really it really changes so much easier to write so much easier to read it really just does the same thing yeah absolutely um anything else from this list so there's like the null uh the null conditional operator which yeah. is what is that one that's a question dot where okay. you, you know you say uh, some ex- uh, okay yeah some expression you. question dot x and w- yep. and what that means is it means dot but only if that expression wasn't null otherwise right. otherwise the whole thing's just null so it kind of pro- so you're avoiding this these nested ifs where you have to check everything you know check all of your assumptions along the way exactly so you can kind yeah. of take a lot of the sometimes you look at code and there's null checks everywhere right and yep. You just do. You're just doing it one level after another to get to the meat if it's there. And yeah. could you just sort of like string all that together? And then so you do a couple of question dots, and and then at the end you either have null or you have something useful. When and then you can even use the old null coalescing operator so that if it was null, you can provide a default value instead. And it just yep. you get some very elegant code that way. Okay, pretty cool. Um, anything else in this list we want to mention? Anything you want to talk about, Carl? Well, you know. I think we got like the well-received ones out of the way. I mean, the ones that are popular, but I guess one that I've actually never tried to use is the primary constructors. And I guess maybe it's just because I don't fully wrap my head around that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Well, I can tell you why you've never used it. It's, it's because we it's because we ended up never putting it in. Oh, oh really? <laughs> so, the, so, so whatever list we got a, this on was... Yeah. It's actually uh, it's a, a great example of uh, some of the stuff that happens when, when, you know, it's like when they make a movie and you have this really great scene that you just put so much effort in, but it ends up on the, on the cutting floor because yep. – the cutting room floor because it didn't fit in or there was something just that stayed off about it. And that's what happened with primary constructors. We were beating and beating and beating on that feature to get it right and to get it to fit into C-sharp. And – at the same time, we were getting more and more concerned that if we put it in, we were sort of preempting some more important scenarios to be added to the language in the future, just because of the syntax that it would occupy. Yeah. And, and so, at the and and so right now we are looking at taking that same syntax and using it for a bigger thing in C sharp seven that we call records. But it was one of those that yeah, there's something right about it, but it's not entirely right. And even though we're almost there, and even though what we have is probably fine to have in a programming language. We just felt too queasy about taking this um, irreversible step. And so we yep. gave, gave up on it in the 
at, at the last. So the pet minute. store, the pet store was about to was about to close, and you know your kids were saying they they wanted that iguana or whatever, but <laughs> you know you just like no, <laughs> we're coming back tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you know, I, I guess what that leads us to though is you know there's a lot of stuff that you guys are looking towards, and one of the things pages that I've been keeping an eye on is on GitHub. There's uh, under the .NET slash Roslyn um, pages. There's you know a, a list of things that are potentially coming to uh, a work list of features. I think it's called. So yeah. they're organized by strong interest, some interest, small but useful, and at the very bottom, like probably never. Right. So <laughs> can can you take us through kind of you know what this list is? You know, hey, can we get our ideas in here? And uh, you know, how how can we tell? But, by looking at this, what you guys are actually working on? Well, first of all, um, I should probably go and update that list again soon, especially when this show comes out. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a little out of date, but but not too much. Um, So uh, one of the big things that happened uh, as we were designing C-Sharp 6 is that we went open source. And we decided to not just open source the the source code, but to open source the design process in the sense that the... uh, the design notes that I had been writing for close to a decade uh, and shared internally at Microsoft, uh, that though we just started making those public and just showing uh, everyone, you know, how the sausage got made, uh, sharing our our design thoughts in whatever sort of embarrassing half uh, finished state that they were in, and getting people to pitch in early so that we had a better you know, so we, we had a better chance of ending up doing the right thing, right? Get feedback early and um, kind of be less um, embarrassed about showing it in process rather than just coming out with a polished well, result. Yeah, before you continue, I'm, I'm, I'm curious too, like, was there was there any, did anybody like kind of call that out and specifically try to embarrass you guys? I mean, like, did they say like, oh man, what did, this is going to be a disaster, you know, because they were seeing how the sausage was made or, or were they really receptive and said, oh, you know what, this is, look, this is great. We like being cl- sooner in the process. It's a mix. Uh, there's, okay. there's definitely, if we, if we come out with something half-baked and people don't yeah. like what they see, that's going to be enough people to tell us they don't like it. And they have <laughs> choice words for it sometimes. Yeah. So it can be, uh, it can be tough on your ego once in a while because, and, and one of the things that we have to be careful not to do is to is to kind of um, restrict ourselves in the creative process, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. We have to be willing to just take a bunch of negativity as things evolve um, and not let ourselves put out by it, not always try to look smart or be buttoned up or whatever. That's what we're trying to get away from. And so yeah. even, even though feedback is often crass, um, it's also often useful. Even the crass feedback is useful. It, it kind of tells us, well, there was a knee-jerk reaction there. Maybe we don't have this quite right. And um, and just to be clear, most of the feedback isn't crass. Most of the feedback is really yeah. useful. It Actually, the, the thing that pains me the most about this way of working um, is not that we get feedback that's that can be hard to take or um, or that can be crass. It's that um, it's really hard to keep up with all the good ideas that are out there. That, that oh, people yeah. people suggest so many wonderful things and think through so many things, so many details that you know there's no way that we could put it all in the language, right? And uh, so there's a lot of effort spent there, and there's a lot of um, of good stuff given to us that ends up not coming to fruition, like the vast majority of what people suggest out there, even great suggestions, we just can't do. And so that that's a bit of a, 
that gets me down sometimes. Oh, I wish, you know, <laughs> I wish we had 20 languages so we could fit all this good stuff in instead of just, <laughs> yeah. instead of just three. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you can try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month. Download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. So yeah, you have out here strong interests, some interests, small but useful. Um, so you said like the strong interest list, do you think this is relatively up to date still? Uh, so I don't have it in front of me right here. Okay, um, so I- you have like tuples, pattern matching, Record slash algebraic data types, nullability tracking, async streams and disposal, strongly typed access to wire formats. Those were the yes. strong interest ones. Any of those that you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So uh, that's actually, it sounds like it is pretty up to date. So okay. that that is pretty much the list of major features that we are still um, actively working on um, mm-hmm. for getting into C-sharp. Now I can tell you for sure that not all of those are going to make it into C-sharp 7. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things that we are trying to do, and that I think we will succeed in doing in C Sharp 7, but no promises, is to ship a little more often. So okay. uh, we're we're less tied to VS releases, and those are coming out more often anyway. And so we we have more of a choice in in when and how often we want to ship the language than we had in the past. And we're we're definitely getting closer and closer to a world where that's more of a an independent decision, if you will. We may still choose to go at the same time as major VS releases, but we don't have to so much because now we're not just a VS language anymore. So um, so the, I can say that the thinking right now is that we will do a pretty quick release of C-sharp 7. I can't tell you what that is um, because that would probably overcommit us in ways that the lawyers would you'd get at my face <laughs> for. But, um, but the, the idea is to finish some of these features and get them into C-sharp 7, and then take the ones that are harder to get right and spend the time on them and keep spending time on them even in this cycle so that we will actually make enough progress that they can get into C-sharp 8. And I, I think one that is likely to fall in that latter category is the is the nullable uh, types or the... Um, the okay, because I, I was reading through these and there's one that I must have now. So I'm going to put... 
all 10 of my votes in this one. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but it's this, uh, strongly typed access to wire formats. Yeah. That, I want this. So that I wanted too, <laughs> but that's, but so that is the one that is probably there, the least, uh, well-defined of all the ones on yeah. the list and the hardest to kind of get a grip on. Uh, we would, okay. we would love some kind of experience that le- makes it easy to take, yeah, take data in from the wire, work with it in a strongly tight way and push it back out without too yep. much of an impedance mismatch or a translation step or too many types having to be pre-generated or pre-written by hand or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cause, uh, we, Cause Carl and I talked about this on the show a while back. There's like a generator out there where you can, I think you could pass in, uh, uh, I, I can't remember. It was like a JSON structure and then it would generate like your C sharp classes or something. And that way of doing it is such a hassle, you know, because if something is, is out of sync, should it error? Should it, you know, fa- silently eat that, uh, right. you know, how should that work? And then I was talking, you know, to the, to our audience about how TypeScript handles it, where you, and I, I noticed that that's actually referred to in, in this feature, but uh, TypeScript, you sort of layer in and you're like, you know what? I know that this thing is going to have a first name and a last name, and it's also going to have other things, but you know, let's not worry about that now. And you sort of layer in that type information. Yeah. Oh, I would love that in C sharp. Yeah, and the thing that type. <laughs> so here's the thing that TypeScript has that we we probably can never have, which is yeah. In TypeScript, you can just take some JSON in and deserialize it, and yep. you and you get some JavaScript objects. It's, yeah, it's well, com- in, in, yeah, it's, with a hundred percent fidelity. Exactly, it's com- it, yeah. it's completely impedance mismatch free, and yep. then at that point you can decide because the type system isn't it doesn't exist at runtime. At that point you can decide. Oh, I'm going to take these. Uh, it, in principle, random uh, JavaScript objects, and I'm going to view them through this type. And I'm yeah. going to get strongly typed support for them just by deciding that they have this type, <laughs> which, by the way, yeah, it's, like it's, magic. A, it's yeah. a structural type system. So I can just, dis- you know, I don't even have to. You just make it up. Yeah. Pre-declare a type or whatever. I can just say, oh, this guy has two ints and a string, and this is what they're called. I'm just going to assume that and write my strongly typed code. Off I go. Yep. And when, when I'm done, I reserialize out to JSON and everyone's happy, right? So that's amazing. <laughs> that's such a decoupling of things. Of course, it comes with downsides, which is you can't actually, you have no idea of knowing if the code you wrote actually corresponds to the shape of those JSON objects. So you don't, nope. you don't get that benefit of static <laughs> typing. But hey, um, how much worse is that than getting an exception as you are deserializing into strong types in .NET, right? It's not that yeah, much or worse. Just lo- or just losing stuff, like I mentioned as well. Yeah. Both of those, yeah, they're both terrible. Yeah, there's no perfect answer to this. Right. So I can I can see why this needs more definition to, to really yeah. weigh all of those pros and cons. It's one of those where either we have to sort of, either we have to get into some notion of fake types or structural types or some other notion of types than we have today, or there needs to be some pre-generation of types. Uh, and and we are exploring the latter option. I can't tell you too much about it because it's still very much in flux, but we're exploring the option of using this uh, great Roslyn API that we have that is a, a you know a first class representation of of the language model as a as an object model and using it somehow to allow you to just in time generate code to specify little generators that will spit some extra source code um, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, use that in a sort of type provider-like way or whatever to to address this problem. So, so we've kind of put the language feature that you mentioned on hold, and and we're looking at where do these generators go, and do they actually solve the problem nicely for us, or solve you know the eighty percent so that we only have to deal with the twenty percent in the language, and and for that reason, that is another one that will that you know is on hold for now until we have 
until we understand what infrastructure we have to build it from. Cool. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting a feel for yeah the the, the push and shove that kind of goes into into doing this. So that yeah. that's some really great insight. So, so uh, it, maybe we should, maybe we should talk about some of the features that uh, we do expect will make it sure. into the next version. Of yeah, the I'd next. like to hear from your perspective. Yeah. So um, so one of the just in a way really simple ones, uh, but also hopefully with an awesome impact, is tuples. Mm-hmm. So many languages have some notion of tuples built in, um, which is essentially just you know, a strongly typed list of values um, of a certain length, right? And um, mm-hmm. we're thinking to do, a, a few languages of late have started doing tuples in a in a way that I actually really like and I think fits better into an object-oriented language, which is that not only do you have a list of values with certain types, but you can also give them names at those positions. So you can actually say, okay, this is not just three uh-huh. strings, but it's the first, middle, and last name, right? So you can a- attach a name to them. And and then they're a little more like a, an object that just has yeah. name properties. And so that's sort of the... And, and what, one of the things that that gives you is that you can... One, so one of the main scenarios for tuples is you want to um, have multiple results out of a, say, out of a method, right? Mm-hmm. Today, you only have ugly options for returning three things from a method. You can have out parameters, which are terrible and don't work with async. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can return... Uh, instances of existing um, runtime types like tuples, but with no language support, so it gets ugly. You can define your own transport type for the sole purpose of having something to return from this. Yep, I've done all these. (laughs) Or you can use dynamic, so you can, one of the (laughs) ugliest (laughs) tricks is to to create an anonymous object and return it as dynamic, and then people can dot into it without any tool support. Without well, people love surprises. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they will get them. <laughs> so those are all bad options, and we just want to come with a really good option. And so the main scenario is you put, not the only one for sure, but probably the, the biggest one is you just put a tuple type as your return type, and then you can return just return a tuple of values. And then it's really nice if that return tuple type looks as much as possible like an argument list, right? So if there's some kind of symmetry, a feeling of symmetry there, here here are my yeah. returns and here are my inputs, my outputs and my inputs in a similar fashion. And, you know, parameters have names. Uh, why shouldn't returns have names? So that when you get them, you can, yeah. you can dot in and get the one you want, or you could just hover tip and see, okay, the second one was the first name, so that's the one I'm going to, you know, you... It gives you the the tool support for for accessing the results better at the at the consumption end that you have these names in there. So that's a design yeah, still, we're we're contemplating for it. Yeah, I still remember in school when I was I was like you know I was learning. I think it was uh, C plus plus at the time, and uh, I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, you can pass in however many parameters you want. And you can give them nice names, but you can only return one thing. Yeah. I'm like, yep. <laughs> it's like, well, what if I want to return two things? And then they, you know, they were talking about what you said. They're like, well, you got to go make this other class, and then you can return an instance. Like, whoa, that's that's a huge hassle. You know, you just sort of accept it as fact. And now I realize, like, yeah, this could be way better. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, there are languages who got it right from the start. Um, yeah. A bunch of the functional languages, they don't even have the notion of multiple parameters, right? Because yeah. you you could take one thing and you deliver okay. one thing. The one thing can can be a tuple on both ends right. if you want to have multiple things. Or it could be an it can be an empty tuple if you want no things, or it can be the uh, the unit value or whatever. So yeah. they just have a nice um, you know symmetric and, and orthogonal model for this that we should have had all along, you know, if we hadn't been so eager to be a C style language. <laughs> yeah. And now we're sort of trying to make up for it as far as we can. 
um, yeah. and g- get some of that symmetry into the language that wasn't there from the start. Mm, that's exciting. Um, anything else you wanted to mention on the strong interest list here? Uh, yeah, let's talk about. Um, <laughs> well, you get I, you. You'll have to stop me when you when you have enough. Well, uh, why don't we pick? Why don't we pick? Why don't we pick one more? Because we have some okay. other great questions for you. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about pattern matching. Um, so that is pattern matching is a thing that is uh, very much out of functional languages too, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. And it's this idea that you can sort of you can sort of declaratively declare. Um, declarative declare, yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of declaration. Your um, control flow to drill down into what kind of shape of object you're looking at. So you take an object mm-hmm. and you so it's sort of like saying if it has this shape, then give me its contents, and if those have that shape, then give me those contents and do this or that mm-hmm. with them, and so on. And you can do that for different shapes, but in a very declarative fashion. So instead of of having like um, an imperative control flow through a bunch of ifs or switches or whatever, like you have in um, in typical imper- uh, imperative flow, you kind of have this very declarative thing that that um, matches the set of possible shapes for objects, possible types and and members and so on. And the reason why that is important is that I think we're in a world where more and more of what you work with isn't objects in the traditional sense, as, you know, stateful things that live on your computer and you change Mm -hmm. them uh, incrementally as you go. Um, But it's data that flows to you um, over the wire again and, and you flow it over the wire to somebody else. And yes, you want a good sort of object-oriented representation of that data, but you actually don't want it necessarily to even be mutable. And certainly, you don't want it to, um, you can't have it sort of come with its own virtual methods to do all its things, right? Because the same data needs to be subjected to different functions in different places where it shows up. So I get you know, I get person data out of a database down to my device, and I want to do one thing with it. Another device gets other things. And so building in the functions like virtual methods with the data just is a bad idea for these scenarios. You want to write your functions independently of the data. And once you have data that is heterogeneous, that has multiple shapes, yes, think of it as a class hierarchy. Once you have a hierarchy and you want to have functions that do different things for different shapes, you need to do it from the outside. And and now either your code gets ugly or you have visitors, which is also ugly, or you have this new language feature that is a very declarative way of just describing what to do for each of the shapes from the outside. Okay, I like that one too. So I'll take all yeah. these. Good, well, um, you'll, probably, you'll probably have to. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm glad you do it willingly. Yeah. Yeah, one yep. of my favorite ones that's in the, uh, the the small but useful list is the allowing extension methods and non-static classes. Oh, you want that? Yes. Okay, well, we, we were totally not going to do that one. Oh. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> but it's no, really? I, Does it, is, it, is, it, is that really something you have to turn on? And not, well, there, there's probably, it's probably like so complex. Is, is, that, is that like a restriction where you just remove the restriction or is it way more complicated than that? It, it could actually be. And you know what? Okay. There's a set of, especially those small but useful features, there's a set of them, an increasing set of them, I would say, cropping up, that we go like, wow, yeah, I guess that would be okay. And it wouldn't really be harmful because it's not adding new syntax or whatever. It's t- typically, those are about removing a few restrictions or you know, yeah. com- completing a matrix of options where one is missing or whatever. And we're like, yeah, we probably will not get to building those. But if somebody in the community wants to contribute, they feel strongly about them, Carl, um, you know, 
Come to be, GitHub. Be slash, careful what you wish for. <laughs> come to GitHub slash Rushlin and uh, give us a pull request on it, right? So, so we're increasingly open to those like micro features, especially uh, coming in through pure community contribution. And for medium features, we probably want to be more involved. But um, we so sort of, I guess, um, gliding into another topic here. Um, we're we're getting better and better at making good use of the fact that we are no longer the only contributors to the source code. Yeah. Um, and this is one where, hey, it, you know, to some degree, it's a meritocracy there, where you, or um, a botherocracy, I want to call it, where the people who bother, <laughs> they can get little things in because they they take the time to build something that you know works in the compiler and and in the IDE and and doesn't. It doesn't cause anybody any harm, and it just makes the language a little bit better. It doesn't add conceptual baggage. It doesn't, you know, add to the bucktail much or whatever. It's, you know, um, let's go do it. So C Sharp is the new Linux based on our previous conversation. <laughs> it's certainly a little closer. <laughs> yeah. That's that's as much as I'll give you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a little joke based on what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So, you know, I was wondering, you mentioned earlier that it's uh, C Sharp is very closely tied to VB. But what other impacts from other .NET languages um, have affected the implementation of C Sharp? Well, I think the other .NET language that we're deeply invested in from Microsoft's side is, um, well, I guess there are two um, other ones. Uh, one is F Sharp, and mm -hmm. I want to mention PowerShell also, uh, but that's sort of an, that, that's more different in, and I think has less influence on us. I think that... Yeah. F Sharp is a functional uh, language or a functional first language, we tend to try to call it because it actually has really good object-oriented support as well. But it sort of comes from the roots of functional languages and, and the heritage of, of ML and, and uh, you know, various versions of that standard ML and particular camel and so on. And it's, um, it's a language with a, with a very different feel. Um, it's sort of very, it has a, a very sort of mathematically elegant terse kind of feel to it um mm -hmm. it's much less verbose and has much more it feels like it has a higher level of abstraction and while it has a stronger type system uh even stronger than by quite a lot than c sharp it also has a, a less verbose type system because it infers most of the types and so it's a diff just a very different feeling programming in it but i think so on the one hand it creates a very interesting alternative to coding with C-sharp and VB, which are more sort of similar under the hood, if you if you look past the um, the sort of syntactic differences on top. Um, but interestingly, it also gives us a lot of, um, I think it helps us understand um, functional concepts better, and we've been borrowing heavily from those. Um, just because, to be honest, um, you know, to some degree, history is on its side, right? Um, they're on the, functional programming is on the right side of history here. Um, where things like immutability and like we talked about declarative pattern matching and, and immutability and so on that have been hallmarks of many functional languages, they just turn out to be, to finally come to, into the, it, their time has come, right? Where, where Yeah, that's the impression I'm getting as well, just in the community. Yeah, and it's not, a, this is not a superficial thing like fashion or, or, or culture or something even. It's, it's really that the problems of today that are being solved by programmers are much better addressed with some of these uh, functional notions. Um, so it's a really, really deep thing. Where, when you're in a distributed environment and everybody suddenly is, uh, you have a bunch of naturally occurring concurrency and so on. Well, it all of a sudden becomes very attractive to not be mutable, to not have shared mutable state. Um, 
and and so on. So um, I think one of the things we're seeing is that F, functional language in general, and F sharp in particular, by just being so close, and you know those guys are next door, uh, right? I just go a couple of, of offices down, and there's uh, Kevin Ransom and, and and David Stevens and so on. Um, but um, they're we're pulling in that direction with C Sharp, that's for sure. If you look at the set of features we're looking at for C Sharp 7, they're all features you'll find in, um, in, in a, a good mature functional language today. That doesn't mean that C Sharp is going to turn into a functional language. There's going to be things that are sort of inherently out of reach, and it's not going to get that feel that F Sharp has. So I think, in a way, F Sharp's time has come as well. It, it's been a, a fairly popular language for a while, but its time has really come both because um, the features it offers now are just perfect for um, many things going on today that maybe weren't were more niche before. But also because the more functional we get with C sharp and with VB, the more we're sort of delivering customers at their door, right? The more we're ta taking those concepts and having more people be raised with them and making it easier to make the final leap to a fully functional language, if you will. So okay. I'm looking at F sharp and going, yes, it's a great influence on C sharp. It's also um, I think I'm very optimistic for its uh, for its future because its time has come as a language. Yeah, I like the idea of being able to you know uh, have that gap be a little bit smaller. So yeah, I can switch over to F sharp, and then I I can switch back whenever the the whenever that makes sense. That 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 sounds pretty appealing to me than having these two things that are like so dramatically different that if I'm using one, I can just never understand the other one. So that's pretty exciting to me. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been, especially a lot of F sharp. Lovers maybe have been a little worried that um, you know C sharp was going to encroach on its turf or something. I don't know, mm. but that I don't see that at all as being what's happening. I think that okay. I think that both languages benefit from from uh, this um, kind of moving closer together. That's happening. yeah. So I, another thing I was wondering is with Roslyn, what kind of advantages or changes have you has Roslyn provided you and your team just with what it offers now? Well, um, Roslyn was a complete rewrite of, we, we tend to say of our compiler, but what we really mean by that is it's a rewrite of our language engine, if you will. So okay. all, all the code that understands C-sharp, uh, syntactically, semantically, all the way down to code generation, that code has been rewritten from scratch in C-sharp and VB for, we did the same thing for VB. Um, and, um, and with a public API on top so that everybody can interrogate source code uh, intelligently with this API. Um, so it has, for us, it has meant, you know, having one authoritative code base instead of, you know, some logic in the IDE and some logic in a compiler has meant, um, you know. Oh, that's it, cool. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to keep uh, the semantics consistent between yeah. the two, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Having it be in C-sharp and well-architected uh, instead of being in C++ and kind of, um, grown over time, um, half ugly hacked together, just gives us a much better innovation velocity and a much higher trust in the in the quality of the code. So we can we can do many more things. You can see that at the language level, we started adding more language features um, just because uh, it's not so scary to add a new language feature anymore. Um, and um, but also at at other levels, you see that our innovation is just going up. And and I think a very important thing is that instead of thinking of ourselves just as servicing an IDE and a compiler, we are now the language engine for everything. Like the, essentially, the philosophy for 
Roslyn is that there should only need to be one code base in the whole world that understands C sharp, right? So for all your language needs, you should be able to go to Roslyn and have them have them serviced. So if you want to build your own language-based tools, be they you know uh, code generators or live um, tool plugins or style cops or um, enormous static analysis of giant source bases or whatever, you know all the scenarios you can think of. Um, we will build some of those uh, from Microsoft, and you can go build your own. And if there's something that whether Roslyn language engine isn't good enough for you, well, it's open source, and we'll take your contribution to to kind of open up that entry point that wasn't there or whatever. So, I think it it it's not just that we get we do get better tools with it, but we also get better toolability. We're enabling a whole ecosystem of of tools in the most general sense of the word um, over the um, over source code. So that's really that's really exciting, um, and you're starting to see it come to fruition. Certainly, with how we work on the team, with some of the features that we are that we are shipping, and how much nicer they are than uh, than they used to be. Uh, but also, just with the more and more of an ecosystem picking this up and, and rolling their own things and making their own awesome things with it. So, uh, you know, I think this is this is a place where we are absolutely in front of. The whole pack in the whole language space. Like we, we're doing something here that is. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about that. I, I I don't see a lot of other languages doing the exact same thing. And it's a hard thing to do. I, one thing we realized is mm-hmm. it sounds so great. Oh, you just have one code base. I bet if it's really well factored, then it's pretty. You're you're pretty golden, right? And but one of the to be honest, it is really hard to maintain this code base, and in particular, it's really hard to keep it uh, efficient. It is super efficient, but it has this foundational tension between being efficient for batch purposes, like compiling down to, to, uh, compiling correct code down to, um, to executables. And at the same time, being snappy and responsive when you are in an IDE where you're dealing with incorrect code and trying to give the best feedback in real time and so on. And so that tension just makes it a really, a, a really hard problem to keep everything as efficient as if you had built them separately. And we do, we keep them as efficient, but it's it's hard work and it's continuous hard work. And so this is something that is just going to, it's hard for other people to, to do. You can't just sit down with your one-man language and do do as good a job of it. Um, so I think of it as, as a, this is a great sort of competitive advantage in a sense. Of course, uh, everybody can look at the source code and they can do the same thing for their language, but they're gonna have a lot of challenges just because it's it's hard to keep it snap. Yeah. Yeah, we're over the hump. Yeah. Okay, so I have I have one more one more quick question, which is really around so so C sharp and sort of out, outside influences, you know, like uh, with .NET Core now going cross platform, and then also, you know, Microsoft recently announced that they acquired Xamarin. So I'm curious with the effect of you know going cross platform, and not only uh, cross platform with um, you know with .NET Core, but also now if you bring Xamarin into that whole family. Like, what kind of, does it have an effect on C sharp, or is it is is C sharp relatively isolated there? Well, I think we've been lucky slash fortunate slash uh, slash um, uh, you know um, clever enough to avoid C sharp becoming inherently a Windows language. Right. So mm-hmm. C sharp as a language uh, is not strongly tied to a platform already. So right, um, which is uh, you know. Turns out to be lucky for us now, but I think we always kind of had this in the back of our minds that there's no reason why it should be a Windows-specific language. Um, so I don't think I don't think it's going to have a direct impact on how we do C Sharp so much as it's going to have a huge indirect Im- impact in that we are we have the opportunity to um, 
to reach to, to uh, broaden the reach of the language to a much more diverse uh, set of developers. So we're, we now become a viable option for many, many more um, developers than we have been and in new scenarios that we have never really reached before. Uh, mind you, Xamarin have already been doing really well on their own uh, in the mobile space um, and are reaching customers that we as Microsoft um, were, didn't have a chance of reaching. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I think that's going to accelerate and having that broader set of Customers, it's going to be really exciting, um, and it's and it might in the long term um, affect how we think about language evolution as well. It certainly will affect uh, and is already affecting how we think about uh, how we do our frameworks and and other things that aren't quite in the language. Um, so, uh, you, .NET Core is an example of that, where in the framework there are more Windowsisms, sort of in the in the in the, the sort of classic .NET framework. Yeah, that's and, kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, and .NET Core has, as a cross-platform version of the framework, has had to address those. Um, mm-hmm. It's been painful, but you know we're getting there. Yeah, and it gets to a really good place. So, yeah. um, uh, so I think that um, if you look at the, the broader C sharp experience, it's definitely going to evolve. Uh, just is already evolving rapidly away from being tied to a particular platform to being just a fully cross-platform technology. And as someone who's uh, engaged with that language, I I couldn't be more excited. It's just amazing. Very cool. Anything else you want to tell us before we wrap up? You mean any like secrets I have or something? Well, (laughs) we'll we'll accept those too. It is just us. (laughs) (laughs) Anything big that we missed that you're just itching to tell us or yeah, any, any roadmap or anything like that? I think we, I think we made the rounds here uh, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. Okay, really cool. Uh, okay, so Carl, you have a dev tip of the week? Yes, I especially picked this one for this topic. Uh, Telerik okay. has a free tool called Just Decompile. And okay. I've used that in the past uh, to either uh, some source code that I've, or some to recover source code of mine that I've lost where I've just had the binaries. Um, but I've also used it, uh, there's uh, a vendor SDK that I was using once. I was having problems with, and I was able to find a bug in their code and give them a, a, a fix for it. Uh, so there's a lot of cool things that you can do by decompiling your code, not just compiling it. So um, for those how of you who are compare under- to how does this compare to um, what is that other tool for doing this? Uh, there's a ton of them. This is the reflector. one I've used. Reflector. Reflector. Yeah, that uh, was it, the big one. Um, this one just has, I think, a little bit more modern UI. Okay. Uh, so you can, you know, literally drag uh, in a, a, a like a DLL or a compiled EXE on there, and okay, and it just pops up in a in a nicer UI. But it, it's very similar to .NET Reflector. Okay, I'll have to try that. Very cool. Okay, so Mads, we play this game on here. So what I need you to do is pick a number between one and four. Okay. You can tell me what it is. I can tell you what it is. No, Let's... you can. Yeah, tell me. Okay, one. One. Okay. Would you rather count all the grains of sand in a sandcastle or count all the spoonfuls of water in a huge swimming pool? <laughs> it's a game for kids. Uh, you asking me? Yeah. I do the latter. Spoonfuls okay. of water. Yeah. Okay. I I think, uh, you know, if you do the sand thing, uh, it's just going to get everywhere. It's going to be it. Yeah, I think both of these are just impossible. I don't even <laughs> know how you pick one of these. <laughs> I think they're just literally impossible. <laughs> I'm just thinking because, like, you know, a 24-foot pool is, like, uh, 14,000 gallons and the number of spoonfuls in a gallon. Uh, no, thank you. Okay, Carl, pick a number. I'll take three. Okay. Would you rather live your life without any taste buds or never have any feelings in your fingers? 
Uh, I, I love to eat, so that would be the obvious, but I think it shows on my body, so... <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want feelings in your fingers, so... Uh, I don't think you'd be able to type then without looking down. Yeah, that would, that, that would be hard. This is, like, this is probably one of the hardest ones we've had, right? Because it's either like your livelihood <laughs> or... Or, or like, my livelihood. You know, or like the reason why you have a livelihood. <laughs> <laughs> so which yeah, is it, Carl? I, I'd have to say I, I have to be able to eat and taste it. Okay. Okay. And you can still, I mean, you just got to look at your hands while you're typing. So you, you can, you can deal with that. I'll, I'll help you out, Carl. Or you can just <laughs> hire somebody to type for you. <laughs> okay. Mads, uh, where can people find you if they want more information on you and C sharp? I think uh, the best place to get in touch with me is on, um, on Twitter. Okay. I have a pretty obvious Twitter handle at Mass Torgerson. Okay. That's easy to remember. And it looks like Carl's linked a few other things here, so we'll have those in the show notes so people can find more there. Mm-hmm. And Carl, where can people find you? You can also find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So, Mads, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about C Sharp. I learned a couple cool things. And... Uh, I don't know. After after C Sharp Seven comes out, uh, maybe you come back on and uh, and we can talk about the latest there. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. 